0: Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force Modern. of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 146 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Kozlik. Thanks for joining me for part two of this three-part series dedicated to the art of the recipe. Last time around, we took a deep dive into the distant past, tracing the origins of the recipe from our proto-human ancestors through ancient Babylon and Rome, and all the way to the very doorstep of the modern world. This episode will finish telling the tale of how the recipe found its way into the spirits and cocktail space, but in order to do that, we need to understand a few details about how it broke out of its coveted vault in the kitchens of the nobility and found its way into kitchens, taverns, and restaurants where normal people cooked, ate, and drank. Eventually, we'll round out our investigation with a discussion of what makes a good recipe in today's world, where forces like digital media, the Food Network, and recipe blogs are a normal part of of many people's lives. But first, you know what? Let's pause as we always do so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Sherry Martini, but not just any Sherry Martini. No, this cocktail is a very special one dreamed up by friend of the podcast, Pablo from Virginia. I saw him post this fascinating drink on Instagram and I reached out to him to see if he could write up the story and the recipe for our listeners. He, of course, was kind enough to oblige. He writes, quote, within the past few years, I've become more interested in foraging for edibles. Aside from flowers and greens, I've become especially interested in mushroom hunting, for morels in particular. So once it's spring and the temperature hits a certain point, I venture out when I can, usually with kids in tow, to see if I can find morels. I'm still very much a novice, much like with cocktail making, but worst case scenario, at least I'm getting fresh air. Morels are good starter mushrooms since there's no real mistaking them, but they are hard to find as they camouflage well. On average, each mushroom is about 3 inches tall with a color that can range from a tan or yellowish to almost a charcoal gray. They're really identifiable by their pocked or indented cap, which looks like an asymmetrical honeycomb. When harvesting, check to make sure that each mushroom is hollow from stem to cap. I've been out a few times this season and have been fairly successful. I usually come home, clean them, and prep them for dinner. They're delicious, earthy, meaty, and a bit nutty. On my last outing, it was cold, dry, and windy, and I easily found about a dozen morels. A couple were perfect, but the rest looked a bit dry. Not bad, just not fresh. As I tend to do, I was thinking about what to drink later that evening, and as it often does, my mind drifted to the martini. Of course, you can't just throw a wild mushroom as is into a cocktail and be done with it. So with the martini format in mind, I figured I'd try pickling the morels for a Gibson-like riff on the cocktail. I'd already been thinking about pickling some when the season started, but it seemed a waste with such good fresh mushrooms. However, these dry morels were ideal for that. So I cleaned the mushrooms, put them into a jar, and made a very basic pickling solution. One cup water, one cup vinegar, two garlic cloves, A teaspoon each of peppercorns, dried dill, chili flakes, and kosher salt, all brought to a boil, dropped to a simmer, poured hot into a canning jar, and cooled. While I prepped the pickled mushrooms, I was thinking about what kind of spin I could put on the martini to welcome this new ingredient into the drink. It didn't take long before I thought to incorporate manzanilla sherry, which is dry, briny, and incredibly refreshing. As I scanned the gin bottles on my shelf, I came across St. George Terroir Gin and I knew it was a no-brainer. The earthy green resin notes coupled with the nuttiness and saltiness from the sherry would be great. Throw in some bitters and vermouth for good measure and a lemon twist and you can't lose. The sherry martini isn't new by any stretch, but I hadn't had one, let alone made one, and there are several varieties with different ratios. To make this sherry martini garnished with a pickled morel mushroom, you'll need two ounces of St. George terroir gin, one ounce of Manzanilla sherry, a half ounce of Dolan Blanc vermouth, and two dashes of citrus and pepper bitters. And if you can't find those, a couple dashes of our embitterment orange bitters will certainly do the trick. Combine all these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice. Stir until well chilled and diluted. Then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with an expressed lemon twist and a pickled morel. Thanks to Pablo for this excellent recipe and the story of its creation. And thanks to all the members of the Modern Bar Cart community who continue to submit questions and recipes. You keep sending them in and we'll continue to feature them right here on the podcast. So, Now that you've got a thoroughly seasonal cocktail in hand with an excellent story and precise instructions, let's turn our attention back to the history and craft of the modern recipe so that we can understand the place that cocktails have in that story. Part 2. Craft. For most historians, the ages of enlightenment and revolution in Europe and the Americas are shall we say, problematic. When consulting the history text, it is both easy and important to focus on some of the negative forces that have shaped today's world. Slavery, colonialism, the rise of nationalism, racial essentialism. Basically, if it happened in Forrest Gump or in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, you can probably trace it back somehow to a rich dude in Europe in a wig. Wearing tights and pointy shoes with shiny buckles. That's all I'm saying. I mentioned that it's both important and easy to focus on these things because we certainly can't ignore the mistakes and atrocities of our ancestors, right? Otherwise, we don't learn. But unfortunately, they're so numerous and widespread that they represent the broad side of the historical barn, right? Everywhere you turn, you're going to run into one. Can't miss them. But while a very small percentage of the world's population was making decisions and allocating resources that would change borders on maps and alter the physical and cultural landscape of the world, a much larger group of people was busy making more humble and decidedly less catastrophic innovations that incrementally solved everyday problems and advanced our understanding of the world we live in. One such gentleman is named Jean-Antoine Brias savarin a French judge and gourmand who penned one of the most influential pieces of food writing in the early modern era. His collection of essays and anecdotes, entitled The Physiology of Taste, or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy, is a patchwork of recipes, aphorisms, and recorded conversations from his lifetime living in France, Switzerland, and the Americas. I'll start by saying the more I read this book, the more it blows my freaking mind. The copy I have was translated and heavily end-noted by M.F.K. Fisher, who is herself one of the most important food writers of all time, and I can't recommend it enough. I'll post a picture of it and a link to the same edition over on the show notes page. What makes it so important, I think, is the fact that Bria Savarin is one of the first thinkers to identify food, drink, and flavor as areas of active inquiry, rather than as a staple necessity of life. He was curious about how we derive pleasure and sustenance from food and drink, and he had lots of theories, many of them being early predecessors to views that remain popular to this day. Listen to this passage from his chapter called On Taste. Quote, The number of tastes is infinite, since every soluble body has a special flavor which does not wholly resemble any other. Tastes are modified, moreover, by their combinations with one, two, or a dozen others, so that it is impossible to draw up a correct chart listing them from the most attractive to the most repellent, from the strawberry to the bitter apple. Anyone who has ever attempted this has, of course, failed. This is not astonishing, for given the fact that there exists an indefinite series of simple tastes, which can change according to the number and variety of their combinations, we should need a whole new language to describe all these effects, and mountains of pages to define them, and unknown numerical characters for their classification. End quote two things jump out here. One is that the author's description of the combination of tastes is eerily similar to the Epicurean physics we examined in part one of this series, where Lucretius described the way that atoms and void in different configurations resulted in different materials and experiences. The other is his advocacy for a whole new language to describe flavor, As a member of the emerging upper-middle class, the author was among the first to sample delectable dishes that had escaped the clutches of royal cooks, finally. And it was clear that there was much progress still to be made in the field of flavor. And that in and of itself was truly revolutionary, especially when paired with his lifetime of carefully recorded anecdotes and meditations. Many would say that Briat Savarin was ahead of his time. But I would argue that another element that makes his book and this author so very compelling is that he was very much a man of and subject to his time. Even though he was of noble enough stock to work as a circuit judge, he wasn't so high and mighty that the tides of revolution didn't occasionally swing him out of favor with the ruling regime, which, forced him to flee the country, first to Switzerland, and then to the newly founded United States by way of Holland. Throughout his fascinating life, he saw the rise of certain commodities like chocolate, coffee, tea, and sugar, which obviously had a massive impact on the shape of European food culture, as well as luxuries like truffled turkeys and well-hung pheasants. But one of the most interesting advances he witnessed in real time was the birth of the restaurant. Briat Savarin writes, quote, Rich and powerful people were almost the only ones who enjoyed two great advantages. They could travel quickly, and they were always well fed. The advent of the new public vehicles, which can cover fifty leagues in 24 hours, has eliminated the first privilege. The coming of restaurants has done away with the second, since, through them, good living is at the beck of any man. End quote. Here, he ties the rise of the restaurant with the sudden access to public transportation that brought visitors flocking to cities like Paris where, up to that point, you can only hope to get a good meal if you were well-connected. Otherwise, you'd have to settle for whatever slop the innkeeper had on the fire. Restaurants to briasse savarin were like little royal kitchens that would serve anyone who could pay. And that made them very popular indeed. Returning to his collection of essays, stories, and reflections. Would I love to tell you the story of the time that he witnessed a man eat more than 300 oysters before dinner? Totally. How about the best way to eat a small bird, feathers and all? Of course I would. Or perhaps his theory on the erotic properties of truffles? You bet. But alas, the author is heavy on talk and light on recipes, so I'm going to wrap up this segment with Bria Savarin's favorite recipe for fondue, which I personally believe holds up pretty well to this day. Quote, weigh the number of eggs you wish to use according to the presumed number of your guests. Then take a piece of good Gruyere cheese weighing one third of this amount and a morsel of butter weighing one sixth of it. You must break and beat the eggs in a casserole dish, after which you add the butter and the grated or minced cheese. Put the casserole dish on a lively fire and turn the contents with a spatula until they have become properly thick and soft. Add a little salt, or none at all, according to whether the cheese is old or not, and a good amount of pepper, which is one of the important characteristics of this time-honored dish. Serve it on a gently heated platter, call for the best wine, Which will be copiously drunk, and you will see miracles. That last instruction kind of sums up both the delight and the motivating factors behind Brias Savarin's life work of analyzing and summarizing the world of food and drink. He did it because it brought pleasure, and that was something he could afford. But for those individuals who were less well off than he, unable to travel the world sampling its finest bounties, Another important text was about to hit the scene and force open the door to the world of flavor even further. Enter Eliza Acton, a British poet and author who published a book entitled Modern Cookery in 1845, 20 years after the death of Bria Severin. This is one of the earliest, and certainly one of the most influential, instances of cooking methods and materials being laid bare and demystified for anyone who could pick up and read a copy of the book. Modern cookery is widely regarded as one of the first truly modern cookbooks because it listed a full set of ingredients for each recipe as well as stipulating the time needed to prepare it. To us, this seems like a pretty obvious thing to include in your recipe book, right? We're used to googling around, clicking on a recipe page, and then seeing a summary of the recipe broken out with prep time, cooking time, number of servings, and a bunch of other little details that we might not even need. But that wasn't the case back in the 1800s, and I'll talk about why in just a moment. Not only did modern cookery boast an impressive catalog of British recipes, but it also is reportedly the first English-language cookbook to publish a recipe for spaghetti. Acton also lists quite a few curry recipes inspired by Indian cuisine, although the use of spice is decidedly toned down to appeal to the English palate. So, in addition to its attention to detail and its illustrated depictions of tools, methods, and various cuts of meat, modern cookery is a culturally expansive text, drawing from the cuisines of cultures far and wide during a time in history when the British Empire was truly a global entity. From a linguistic standpoint, a few things jump out at me when I read Acton's recipes the first of which is her noteworthy departure from the normal format of the recipe by beginning her instructions with really dynamic action verbs like pound, cut, brown, pare, strip, mince, and others. These words differ from the traditional way of beginning a recipe, which almost always involves the word take. In fact, the word recipe itself is derived from the Latin imperative word for Take, which is also the origin of the RX you see on doctors' prescription pads, right? Take two pills twice a day with food. Anyway, the important thing about Acton's really specific action verbs is that they tell us she emphasizes process over materials. Anyone can acquire ingredients on a list, but what Acton demonstrates again and again in modern cookery is that it's the way these ingredients are processed and combined that has the largest impact on the end product. Again, this might not seem revolutionary to you and me, but I can assure you that it blew the minds of many an aspiring home cook in the 19th century. Now, the place where we take an unfortunate left turn is when we begin to analyze the importance of weights and measures in the formulation of modern recipes. And this becomes increasingly important as we transition from the culinary world to the domain of the cocktail and other creations that reside within the liquid medium. Bria Savarin's fondue recipe from the late 1700s or early 1800s uses only relational measurements. He says, weigh the number of eggs you need according to the number of guests you expect, and then, in the recipe, every other ingredient is proportionally based on that weight. In modern cookery, on the other hand, we see the use of imperial measures like pounds, ounces, quarts, and gallons. This, again, seems like a serious upgrade and looks a lot like today's recipes, but I've got some bad news to break to you. Even these systems of measurement are a really, really new thing. Let me spit some facts at you to put it in perspective. Regarding weights and measures, England had a bunch of legislation on the books, stemming from like the late Middle Ages and Renaissance, but no unified and consistent system... Of Weights and Measures until the British Weights and Measures Act of 1824, about 20 years before Acton's book was published. America, on the other hand, decided it would go ahead and figure out its own system of Weights and Measures, despite the recommendations from Francophile Thomas Jefferson, who liked the metric system. That, by the way, was rolled out in France in 1799. If you look at cocktail recipes to this day, there's almost always one set of instructions for the U.S. measurements, right, ounces, and another developed for the metric system, milliliters, which means that you're never making a completely identical version of a drink if you swap between the two formulations. They're just not apples to apples. So although we take it for granted today when we see a consistent volume or weight measurement on a recipe... There were very few consistent standards even a century or two ago, which actually lends a bit of curb appeal to all those relational recipes that just threw measurements out the window. Now let's talk about time, right? Acton famously included cooking time on all her recipes. Well, it might surprise you to learn that until the middle of the 1800s, and for poor families quite a bit later, nobody besides the uber-rich could afford a clock in their home, let alone one that was portable enough to be moved to the kitchen. To me, this doesn't so much invalidate Acton's recipes, as it emphasizes the importance of making informed estimates about things, like the passage of time. Even if it's aspirational, Acton gives her readers a target to shoot for, which in itself was revolutionary. Finally, we have the issue of heat. I won't dwell on this too long, but suffice it to say that Acton's cooking was mostly or all done on wood or coal-burning stoves. And that was certainly the case for her cookbook readers. So there was really no such thing as setting the oven to 350 for one hour. That wouldn't come along until much later. And since I just promised you that we'd be moving along to the liquid stuff here, which doesn't require heat or cooking in general, let's fast forward to the last decade or two where one popular drinks historian makes an important contribution to beverage recipes and our ability to recreate them. Enter David Wondrich, good old Davy boy, cocktail historian noteworthy for his work at Esquire and just about every other respectable print and digital publication that has a regular drinks column. He is, of course, the author of two very important books, Imbibe, which is a great entry point to spirits and cocktails, and Punch, which gets real deep and historical and has, in my opinion, even better writing than his first book. Now, Wondrich squared off against a question that pretty much anyone interested in cocktails has raised at some point, which is what did these classic drinks taste like when they were first invented? The first step, of course, is to dig up some sort of documentation that reveals a cocktail's ingredients and measurements, and hopefully, hopefully, its origins. But if you're a true primary source historian like Wondrich and not like all these lazy bloggers and journalists I complain about during our featured cocktail segment, you might rightly be faced with a recipe that involves measures like flagons or gills or wine glasses. In both his books, Wondrich provides easy conversions for all sorts of arcane weights and measures, which is what makes them useful both as historical texts and as recipe manuals. Wondrich's books are quite different from many others that were popular early in the 20th century. Here, I think of books like Mr. Boston's Official Bartender's Guide, which takes the form of a reference book like a dictionary or encyclopedia with short entries about each drink. Hold up Mr. Boston next to imbibe, and it looks like apples and oranges. Kind of because it is. While Wondrich leans heavily on historical context, Mr. Boston and similar books care more about the materials and maybe a few sketchy notes on the process needed to produce a given drink. This reminds me quite a bit of the differences between apicius, which we discussed in part one, and modern cookery. Apicius, like Mr. Boston, is targeted at professionals, people who might consult it as part of their day-to-day occupation, and perhaps even under a deadline, right? I'm making this dish and I need to make sure I do it right. Books like Imbibe and Modern Cookery are much more concerned with giving tools to people who are operating in their own homes. And if you've made it this far, I think it's kind of cool to appreciate some of the heritages from which we can trace today's popular cocktail books. Like Eliza Acton, Wondrich begins imbibe with a list of tools and techniques that anyone who plans to read the ensuing pages will need to know or reference. And this explicit definition of terms is important because the assumption is that the reader hasn't attended culinary school or, in Wondrich's case, arcane cocktail school. Going back to Brias-Savarin and even further to the Epicurean atomistic physics we covered in part one, I think one way to distinguish these two different types of recipe books from one another and to value them each for their own sake is to think of texts like Apicius and Mr. Boston as being concerned with the quantity and type of ingredients and then texts like Imbibe and Modern Cookery as being concerned with how those ingredients are manipulated and configured, and why. So the next time you purchase a book of recipes or come across a sexy recipe blog on the internet, I'd encourage you to try and pass what you read through that filter. It could tell you what the recipe and its author are best suited to communicate, and it could also offer insights on what might be missing in order for you to truly grasp the process. Before I wrap up this episode with a list of my best practices for writing a well-crafted recipe, drawing on all the stuff we've learned in the first two installments of this series, I'd like to take a quick pit stop, and admittedly this pit stop is a bit of a rant, to consider a recipe trend I find charming but only to a point. Here's when this little trend first Occurred to me and let me preface this all by saying I do not own a television and I do not watch network TV on the reg So I'm often oblivious to certain popular trends until they smack me in the face. That's exactly what happened here It was around New Year's in 2018 and my wife and I were in Lisbon for a trip that she was taking as a part of uh, her business school requirements and Wouldn't you know it? I was traveling had some oysters, and just so happened to contract the worst case of norovirus that anyone has ever had the pleasure to meet. So there I was lying feverishly in a hotel room in a foreign country, and the station I told my wife to leave on while she left for the day happened to be the Food Network, but not the good old American Food Network. Remember, we're in Europe. So, I was watching some UK version of the Food Network, and they happened to be airing an all day marathon of a show called Siba's Table. Now, I grew up watching chefs like Emeril Lagasse and others who did cooking demonstrations, often in front of live studio audiences, but the show was centered wholly around the food. But Siba, oh, Siba had a style all her own. All I can remember about that day is lapsing in and out of fever dreams, listening helplessly, because I could not reach the remote, about how we were making this dish because Siba's in-laws were visiting and we needed to make this dessert because she was being visited by a childhood friend who had a mango tree in her backyard. And all the while we got to watch her husband entertain their two kids while Siba shopped for ingredients and then went home to prepare the dishes. I don't know if it was the cramps and cold sweats or the deluge of unnecessary plot lines that had me more bent out of shape that day, but I continue to be fascinated by the use of narrative, or story arc, in recipes, and very quick to point out when somebody goes overboard. The U.S. has its own version of Siba's Table in the form of The Pioneer Woman, who not only has a show with a similar format on the Food Network, but she also has a line of cheaply made cookware and servingware that will break if you look at it the wrong way. I can tell you that much from personal experience. In essence, the host of this show, Ree Drummond, is just hanging out on her Oklahoma ranch, living the American dream. Did the kids just get done wrestling in the hayfield? Well, let's whip up grandma's famous lemonade. Is her husband tired from a day milking horses out in the South pasture? Time for some deep-fried shepherd's pie. And for dessert, well, you'll get a heapin' helpin' of stage-scripted banter that somehow makes you feel like you're just another member of the family. I think you can see where I'm going with this. At a certain point, a recipe is no longer a recipe when you spoon-feed it to people in the form of infotainment. It may have been a recipe at one point, but when the delivery is somehow contingent on filling a 20-minute time slot to feed you ads, well, I'm going to go ahead and unsubscribe. That's why I began this episode with Pablo's wonderfully thoughtful and beautifully articulated story about his sherry martini with pickled morels. Let's walk through it so I can show you what I mean in light of Siba's table and the pioneer woman. In Pablo's recipe, was there a story or an initiating incident? Yep, the story was it's spring, and spring means morel mushrooms. Pablo likes to forage them, and it's a good excuse to get some exercise outdoors. There's your initiating incident. Was there a problem to solve or a reason why he made this recipe? Absolutely. He foraged some morels that were dry, and he was able to repurpose them by pickling them and using them as a cocktail garnish. There's your problem, dry mushrooms, and there's your solution. Let's pickle them. Was useful information conveyed? Absolutely. Not only did Pablo give us the cocktail recipe, which he customized using carefully chosen ingredients from his bar and explaining why he selected each one, but he also gives us a bonus recipe in the form of his pickling liquid. He also tells us about morels and how to identify them. That's a ton of information that we get in the process of that narrative. I love a good story, but all good stories are real, just like Pablo's, not constructed in order to prevent you from changing the channel. Remember that last detail of Bria Savarin's favorite fondue recipe? He said, Call for the best wine, which will be copiously drunk, and you will see miracles. There's no doubt that he himself had done so one day while serving or enjoying that very recipe, and he was consequently the participant in or witness of some sort of minor miracle, or at least a cheese and wine induced hallucination. It might seem silly for me to make this point, but even this is a real detail that I don't mind encountering in a recipe because it teaches me something about the delicious potential that can be unlocked when you can arrange the atoms and void in your ingredients in just the right way. And in that sense, even such a trivial seeming detail can be extremely valuable. Now it's time to see if we can synthesize what we've learned over the past two installments of this Art of the Recipe series, and turn it into a few helpful tips that will help you to be a better recipe writer the next time someone asks you for the secrets behind your favorite dish or drink. Tip number one. Be careful what you assume. Jerry Thomas might have assumed that the ingredients in his gin and pine cocktail were pretty obvious, but here we are a century and a half later scratching our heads. This is the think about your audience instruction that all writers need to consider before publishing something because, you know what, your end product's going to be vastly different based on the assumptions you make about what your audience knows and has access to regarding tools and ingredients. So if you make an assumption, make it a good one based on reflection and evidence. Tip number two, be specific about your materials. In cooking, a large onion is different than a medium or small one. In mixology, a bar spoon of absinthe is different from an absinthe rinse is different from an absinthe mist. Thus, it is crucial to specify whenever possible how the raw materials you use will be configured. If we're using the absinthe example I just gave and combining it with our running Epicurean alphabet metaphor, absinthe might be analogous to a letter of the alphabet. Let's call it A. A bar spoon might be an A with a particular accent on it, and those other two absinthe applications might also have slightly different inflections depending on how they're used. If you're able, make sure you specify not just the type of ingredient, but also any other specifics related to its application. This can be the difference when going to a French restaurant between requesting poisson, fish, or poison. Tip number three. A recipe is not just a list of ingredients. Remember how Eliza Acton used all those really beautiful action verbs to begin her recipes in modern cookery? To me, those really helped to visualize the process of creating her recipes. Like all good verbs, they brought the process to life. Along the same lines, one way of thinking about a sentence is to designate something as an agent. That would be you or the person making the recipe. Then specifying something as an act, right? That's the verb part, the process of executing said recipe. And then finally, you need something as an object, which would be the ingredients you manipulate on the way to creating your end product. But in between, there's a lot of description that can occur using words like adjectives and adverbs to really bring some color to the picture. There's a difference between slicing and thinly slicing, just as there's a difference between shaking and vigorously shaking. So before you send off a recipe, go through it looking specifically at your verbs, adverbs, and adjectives to make sure that you're painting a full picture of the process you aim to describe. Tip number four, know when to elaborate and when not to. The best place to elaborate in a recipe is the place where it's either most complicated or it's easiest to mess up. This is when you want to hold the hand of your reader. Otherwise, you might want to take a page out of apicius and assume, when convenient, that your reader can glean some basic information from context, like the fact that you need to peel an onion before using it. Duh. Tip number five narrative should be used like sauce. As you can see from my final rant, when the story overshadows the recipe, it's like having a comically tiny piece of meat swimming in a bowl full of gravy. So if you wouldn't do that, why would you bog down a perfectly good recipe with unnecessary backstory that your reader might not relate to? If you want to write a culinary essay, do that. If you want to produce a substance-less TV show or a narcissistic food blog, do that. But if you want to just write a good recipe, make sure that everything you write is somehow in service of the dish or drink you're trying to describe. Thanks everyone for tuning into this second installment of our Art of the Recipe series. It's obviously a subject that I love and it's one that you can always learn more about by going back through history to see what folks were doing to food and drink at different points, how they were treating it and and how that affected their culture and what it can teach you. I'm hard at work planning the third installment of this series that will hopefully involve a special guest and maybe even a bonus crossover episode. So keep your eye out for that. And as always, thanks for listening. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, and a little bit of recipe magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.